Have you ever been in a place where your credit cards were maxed out and you can't swipe one more to make a purchase? It's a terrible moment when you realize that not only do you have no purchasing power for the necessities of life, but that everything you might make in the coming years that could be put toward the debt you owe will likely never be enough. There's a debt you can't pay and a deficit you'll never cover. We have a term that applies to that condition. It's called bankruptcy. And some of us are familiar with that. It's painful. And I don't mention this to bring up painful memories from the past, but to actually kind of set the stage for where our study in Romans is taking us. In chapter 1, Paul introduced the theme of the letter to the Romans, and those two verses are key for our understanding. He wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the, the, the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, is designed to reveal the righteousness of God. But in revealing the righteousness of God to us, we also have to acknowledge our unrighteousness. And so from the middle of chapter 1 all the way into chapter 3 as we will go today, Paul has been systematically just removing any supports that we as, as a people might prop ourselves up with saying we're not as bad as you describe us to be or think us to be. We're actually more righteous or religious or committed uh, than, than you might assume us to be. And he just continues to eliminate all of those. First with the non-religious, showing that they are accountable to God because there is this thing called natural revelation. The world around us was designed by God to reveal his divine attributes and his, his sovereign eternal power. And then we came into chapter 2 where Paul begins to turn attention specifically to the religious Jews of his day. But we were seeing just a couple of weeks ago how all of that applies even to those who are, are, are ultra-religious, consider themselves to be really pious and committed to systems and teachings and traditions of religion that they've been told will help them make their way to heaven. But at the end of chapter 2, Paul has concluded that being a Jew is a matter of the inward transformation. It's not about outward conformity, and that's true of any religious system. And we come to chapter 3 today, and some of the most famous verses that uh, are often used when sharing the gospel just absolutely slam the door on any argument that might be raised in the presence of God to say, well, actually, I am righteous, or there's some, or, or, or let me just suggest that you might have overlooked where no one is righteous. All people, both the non-religious and the religious, are under the control of sin and the, con the condemnation that flows out of that. Now, that feels like a heavy thing to say. That's not good news, is it? But remember, I've been saying since we started this series that we've got to walk through some really dark and heavy truths, reality, if you will, in order that we might be prepared 
to receive the good news. And, and we're finally gonna get there today, but we're only gonna have time to like step through the doorway into this glorious uh, room of gospel truth. So there's still great stuff coming. Hang in there. If you have your Bibles, open them please to Romans 3. Romans 3, that's page 940 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, from the seat rack in front of you. And I'd like to read, as we've been doing, uh, the portion that we'll study today. So you follow along as I read Romans 3, verses 1 through uh, 22. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And let me just interject that. Paul is quoting from Psalm 51, and the, the you there, that you may be justified in your words, has reference to God himself. So God is justified in whatever legal declarations he makes concerning David in that particular psalm. Remember, David has been confronted for his sin of adultery and murder. And so God is saying, Lord, you are, you are justified in whatever you would say about me. And you prevail. That is, your, your judgments are always right and true, and, and they will come to pass. Now verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous or unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Pray with me, please. Father, as we open this word. It is with the great hope and uh, full expectation that your spirit will reveal these divinely given truths in order that we may understand them. We renounce 
our human strategies and our even self-righteous ways of coming to the word. And we lean wholly upon you for a proper understanding of this word and pray that as the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds and hearts with this understanding, that you would also empower our wills to believe it and to turn to you in faith that we might not only experience the transformation of this word, but that we might be empowered and motivated to obey it in its completeness. There is a work that needs to be done in each of our hearts that we are unable to do. So we yield ourselves to you and pray that your blessing would rest upon this assembly today and upon those dear ones who join us uh, via live stream that all that you have purposed would be accomplished. We ask, great God, that even beyond our church, that this community would know the power and grace of the living God that you would subdue sin and convict our hearts of sin, that together we may turn to the living God and know your saving power. We plead for this same grace to roll through our nation, that you would convict uh, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment that is to come, that we would turn away from our proud ways of thinking and living, that we would turn away from our sinful acts of rebellion uh, where we have rejected you and where we have abused and exploited our fellow human beings. Oh, great God, have mercy upon this land. We ask that a great awakening would not only spread throughout this nation, but would spread around the world, and that even today, as the gospel is proclaimed publicly and shared privately, you would so empower it that it would result in the, th in the conversion of thousands who at this moment are blind and lost in much the condition that all of us have known and some present here this morning know in a painful way. You are the Savior. You alone are the rescuer. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, great, great God and Father, and save us from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul begins with a really important question. Is there any advantage then to being a Jew? Look at verse 1 again. And remember, although he's talking specifically to the ultra-religious Jews... There are principles that apply to us. And in verse 1, as he asks that question, he gives a, a quite remarkable answer in verse 2. Much in every way, he says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what does he mean by the oracles of God? Very simply, he's speaking of the Old Testament. It's what they had been given long before Moses actually writes in Deuteronomy 4, verse 8. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And the answer was then, there is not another nation who's experienced this great privilege or advantage. If you have read through Paul's letters to Timothy, Timothy was his son in the faith. Timothy pastored the church at Ephesus. And there are two letters in the New Testament that bear Timothy's name. 
1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, as Paul seeks to stir Timothy's zeal to encourage him, he reminds him to continue in what he has learned and has firmly believed, and then says, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. A synonym would be the oracles of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying is, you Jews have a profound advantage over all the other peoples of the earth because you have been given the word of God and in it the way of salvation has been revealed. In it, the Old Testament, beloved, the Old Testament ultimately points all of us to Jesus Christ and calls us to put our faith in him. It's Paul's word to Timothy. But notice the response to the oracles of God. Verses three and four. Let me summarize these verses in this way. There were some who refused to believe it personally. And as a matter of fact, as you read through verses three and four and you encounter that word, some were unfaithful, that has the idea of refusing to believe. It doesn't doesn't mean that they just kind of lost their way and and forgot about the importance of of these commands and laws that God has given, but actually there was a hardness of the heart that was beginning to emerge. But notice what Paul asks, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness, or we could even say trustworthiness of God? Verse four emphatically answers this, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And then, as I noted in, in the reading, he quotes Psalm 51. See, because God is absolutely trustworthy. And his word as he has given it is not only true in its judgments and its assessments, it is authoritative, even for those who say, nope, don't want it, not believe in it. So some refuse to believe personally, but here's a second thing that we encounter in verse five, and that is that all, and this would include the non-religious, can't forget that from chapters one and two, all fail to obey perfectly. And ironically, even as some are wrestling with God's justice and how this law operates, they begin to accuse God himself of injustice. Look at verse five again. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness or justice of God, what shall we say? Well, here's one option, that God is unjust to inflict wrath on us. You've probably encountered people who've said things like this before. Well, if God is all-powerful, and, and loving, why would he create a world where he knew all this bad stuff would happen? And they actually try to shift the responsibility back to God as if he's unjust. Well, Paul answers this accusation, verse six, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? Verse seven, if through my lie, here's a, here's a second uh, accusation, so to speak. If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Well, uh, a third follows right on the heels in verse eight. Why not do evil that good may come? Then Paul says, as some slanderously charge us with saying. There's a little backstory there. You'd kind of like to sit, pause and go, uh, Paul, can you fill in the blanks there? Like, what's that all about? Then he simply says their condemnation is just. See, the great reality is though we're all excuse makers by nature, God is, is closing that down for religious and non-religious alike. Paul's about to do something that would have been rather startling, if not shocking, for religious Jews. And what we see him submitting next actually shatters the advantage 
of having the oracles of God. You say, what do I mean? Well, he begins to build that final part of his case saying that there is condemnation that actually comes out of the thing that you cherish and believe is to your advantage. He says in verse 9, all are under sin, and he's including the religious Jews. All are under sin. What does that phrase mean, all are under sin? It, it means to be controlled by it, and then he begins to roll through a series of effects, if you will. Let me, let me go back for just a second before you look at that first point there um, of, of what being under the control of sin really looks like. When he says, um, look at verse 10 with me. All are under sin, but now notice what he does. When he, when he says in verse 10, as it is written, um, and, and he is taking the people, the, the Jews in particular, back to the very word of God that they would have held up in such high esteem, and he's going to roll through a series of quotations out of the Old Testament. Five of these are taken from Psalms. And think with me for just a moment about the typical Jewish person would have known many of the Psalms, committed them to memory. Those 150 hymns, if you will, comprise the core of their Sabbath day worship, comprise the core of many of their holy weeks, those feast weeks that God had set aside from Passover to the, the Feast of Trumpets and Pentecost and throughout the year. The, this is the central book that every faithful Jew loved, esteemed, memorized, sang, quoted, and in a sense, Paul is actually taking the heart of the oracles of God that many of these people were using as a defense, saying, see, I'm a person of the word, and, and in many ways, as we'll see in just a moment, a lot of them would have kind of hidden behind the word. Like, I don't want to be exposed for who I really am, but see, I, I love God's word. I know it. I sing it. I pray it preach it, teach it. Here they are kind of like, but we have the word of God. We have the word of God. And, and Paul in great love but firmness takes the word out of their hands and says, can we actually pay attention to what God himself says in this word about you? And he's gonna quote five Psalms that they would have known really well and probably been singing through them and praying through them for years but never paying attention to what God Almighty was saying. And I pause here, beloved, and I think how often do we come to God's word as if it's just like truth and principles for life and yet God himself is speaking to us personally but we just cruise right through it and think we're all okay. Check the box for daily devotions. Check the box for weekly Bible reading. Check the box for going to church and hearing the sermon, hearing the word of God preached. And you can actually use this book to hide from God himself. And in kindness, God comes through Paul to very committed religious people and says, let me have that book and now I'm gonna use it as I designed it. So that's why I say I think it would have been stunning for the Jews of Paul's day and even others beyond that to hear him quote five portions of Psalms and then also a, a portion from Isaiah. I, I think it would have been shocking, if not offensive. Now notice what he says. None is righteous. No, not one. Sin totally defiles us. There's no one who's exempted from this. We sometimes even talk about the, t the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that every individual is as bad as he or she might possibly be, but it does mean every part of you has been corrupted by sin. Your mind, your will, your heart, your body. 
There's just not one part of the world that hasn't been corrupted by sin, and there's not one part of us that we could say, well, here's the righteous corner of my life. See, I'm not totally corrupted. Listen to God. None is righteous, not one. Sin defiles us totally. Secondly, sin deludes us thoroughly. Look at verse 11. No one understands. That has to do with the comprehending activity of the mind and entails the assembling of of all the facts or all the pieces of truth into an organized whole so that, you could put it this way, so that we actually are in our right minds. Again, it doesn't mean that we are utterly insane, but this culture does pride itself in, in its advancement in knowledge and technology and all kinds of sciences. We really believe we're the most enlightened generation on earth, but there are hard evidences that it is the opposite. That sin actually is controlling our capacity to think rationally, and that's what Paul is driving at when he says no one understands. Sin has so corrupted our capacity to think that we actually begin to to believe and then act on those beliefs in a way that demonstrates we do not understand. I think nothing illustrates this more painfully and personally in today's culture than our broken sexuality. It's interesting, if you trace the history of the sexual revolution, it actually goes back at least a full century. And I know that, I mean, mankind has always rebelled against God's design for us when it comes to sexuality, but it it really gained some momentum in the last century. And you can read uh, the writings of Freudian scholars, two in particular, that seem to have have even coined the terms the sexual revolution. I'll leave that to you and, and to your research, but it's interesting, as some of their teachings took hold, and then even into the early 60s, all the way through the late 80s, the sexual revolution was formalized, so to speak, and the term was used frequently. And there was, as one author writes, a social movement that challenged traditional codes of behavior related to sexuality and interpersonal relationships. And so as a culture, we began to normalize anything and everything that we could imagine or desire. And so everything from public nudity to pornography to premarital sex and homosexuality to abortion itself were tied into this revolution where we thought we were, we tried to describe it, we're just throwing off the Victorian Uh, sensibilities and and just finding our true selves, but in actuality, we were rebelling against the creator. And under the guise, even in our own nation, as well as other nations, under the guise of protecting free speech, erotic literature and movies were not only permitted, but promoted, and sex became big business. And by the end of the 80s, culture was largely untethered from any moral restraint. And with the sexual freedom came a host of bad consequences from the abuse and exploitation of children and adults to diseases that have killed thousands, from the skyrocketing rate of pregnancies ending in abortion to the number of children who have grown up in these decades in single parent homes or with no parents whatsoever. And even non-Christians were recognizing in the mid to late 80s the deleterious effects of all of this. And you can see some things related to the Attorney General's Commission on Pornography that really are quite stunning. But few could comprehend where this was leading. And I'm, I'm, I'm deeply saddened and even amazed that we actually began to self-identify through our sexuality, rejecting 
our sacred identity as image bearers of the Most High God and choosing our sexual practices and preferences as our identity. What have we forfeited? And so now even that, that someone would need to feel the need to speak up and say, I'm heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, and then all kinds of variations, like, like that's your identity? When God Almighty said, you're my image bearer, you're created to be like me, to know me. And, and some say, in all seriousness, that there may be 30 or more genders and, and try to make the case that there's more to this than biology and that hi- the historically held idea of just two genders, male and female, is a social construct. Just this past week, I listened uh, to NPR. I sometimes slip over to the see, see what's going on and I was on the way home from our men's meetup Friday morning listening to a discussion and I thought, I was intrigued by the question, how can we get our men to stop objectifying women? Nobody breathed a word about, well, let's ban pornography. And, and as we turn away from that, see, biblically speaking, that's, like, that's what repentance is. Get rid of the stuff that is harming us. Why don't, we, why don't we get active in teaching the sacred nature of our bodies and the holiness of the sexual union between a husband and wife? But you would be laughed out of a discussion if you suggested doing what God himself has done through his word. Do you see what I mean when I say the the brokenness of all of this and that we can't even connect the dots to go, you know, there's a problem over here with all these crimes and offenses that you can draw a straight line, a hard line, right? Back to here. But it's all because we want our freedom. Well, this is, see, this is an explanation of of what Paul means when he says, no one understands. You've lost your capacity to connect those dots and to reason through this thing in a spiritual, divinely human way, if I can put it so. See, sin not only leads us into deeper and deeper confusion, but it leads us into delusion. Confusion is simply a lack of understanding and and often an accompanying uncertainty, but delusion is, and I'm gonna use a, a dictionary definition here, an idiosyncratic belief that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by what is generally accepted as reality or rational, rational argument. And it's typically a symptom of mental disorder. That's, that's straight out of a dictionary. But we find ourselves today, and in a sense, it's like the next step downward, a subset, maybe you could say, of the sexual confusion that results from this sexual revolution that we launched decades ago. Biology tells us that there are only two genders. Psychology has historically said there are only two genders. Sociology has rightly affirmed only two genders through the ages. And theology tells you God wisely and sovereignly created just two genders. But here we are saying, oh, no, no, no. That's so outdated, so antiquated. Sin is what produces this kind of delusion, and it deludes us thoroughly. Well, we read on in the text and find that sin drives us recklessly. No one seeks for God. When Paul says no one seeks for God, it's just kind of like we lose interest in it. It's not a priority. It's not important anymore. Verse 12, all have turned aside. And it's interesting that the, the terminology here really seems to convey the idea that we get busy employing strategies to avoid God. 
Are you avoiding God today? You can do it in a non-religious way and you can do it in a religious way. I, I gave you one earlier when just holding this up in front of my face. You, you can actually avoid God with his word. Just like the non-religious person avoids God by some alternative worldview, you can try to twist and distort the word of God to make it kind of fit your comfort level as the Jews were doing. Are you hiding yourself from God today? Some of you use family or career or recreation to do it. It's like an anesthesia. Just kind of numbs your soul to the great reality that just nags at you when you're all alone. So your family is a helpful distraction. Your career, it's a helpful distraction. Helps you avoid God. Some of you might be really committed to your religion. I mean, you, you are there. You are all in, and you do the stuff you've been told you should do, and you serve, and, and you give yourself away. But in reality, it's your strategy for avoiding God. There are a thousand things we use. I'm so heartbroken as I continue to think about how this community that we're a part of has one of the highest rates of drug abuse, both prescription and non-drug abuse, highest rates of suicide. Someone was just mentioning yesterday in a conversation that um, in, in this region, when acceptance letters go out from one particular school, local public schools go on suicide watch because the devastation that comes to some who have their hearts set on, on one particular school or one particular you know, place of education and to not get it, they feel like, then my life is not worth living. And I think, where, where are we? And Paul goes on to say, together they have become worthless, that is incapable, as, uh, incapable of functioning as we were designed. And so words like useless, worthless, damaged, or even disabled. And, and we should not read become worthless as if my life is pointless. It's just like I don't, I don't have the ability to do and be what I should do and be. Paul then says, look at the text with me one more time. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So if I could just use the last little phrase to describe the sin ruins us completely. And, and even as you put all of those Old Testament quotations together, I mean, it just brings you to that place of saying... we. We, we are lost, and that is true. And it's easy to look at the news headlines and say, well, Portland ought to get it under control, or that group out east or down south, or you know, it's easy to look other directions, but what the Lord does through his word is to come to you and me and say, let me tell you what you really are. And I'm sure at this point, as I said, again, just kind of put yourself in the, in the place of Jews who've gone from saying, but we have the oracles of God, a profound advantage. Yes, it is advantage, but because of, of the rejection and rebellion, the refusal to believe, and the fact that none are able to obey with, with perfection, it leads ultimately to condemnation. And that's where Paul says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law the really religious ones, the Jews, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. 
is it not ironic to you that the, that the profound advantage of having the oracle of God becomes the strongest witness condemning the ones who valued it? Every mouth is stopped. This ties actually back to the Psalm 51 quotation we saw earlier in the chapter where David had written, Lord, you are justified in your words. See, what brings our mouths to that place where we have nothing to say? Well, it is the weight and authority of God's word. And as he has just rolled through these quotations and put it all out there, I mean, what, who's gonna possibly argue with God at this point? And go, what? No, I am righteous. I'm not as bad as you make me out to be. No, this is God speaking. And the weight and authority of God's law is so great that we have nothing to say against the judgment and condemnation and we would be fools. And then he uses the word, the next phrase, the whole world may be held accountable. So again, he stepped back from the specific conversation with religious Jews or even religious people and now he just wraps his arms around earth and says the whole world is accountable. And he's not even leaving the door open that you know maybe some of you will be all right. Like we'll go through this accounting and some of you will be okay and others of you will be in trouble. No, the, the terminology speaks of the whole world coming under God's judgment, even a pronouncement of guilty. And what Paul, I believe, desires for religious Jews to come to terms with is the same thing that every religious person needs to come to terms with, that your religion in and of itself, even powerful traditions that go back centuries, even holy books or sacred writings that you've put your faith in cannot save you or rescue you when you are exposed in your soul for what you really are. And that is an unrighteous person. And someone might say, but wait a minute. What about my religious works? What about the good things that I've done? I mean, let's talk to the people who, who live and serve and work around me. I mean, my neighbors would tell you. My family would tell you. My school would tell you. My associates would tell you. And, and Paul says emphatically in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You and I would be fools to think that we could actually stand in the presence of God one day and, and defend ourselves, as a defense attorney might do, build our case and you know, build a resume and, and start listing all of the righteous things that we've done in life as if somehow it would outweigh the unrighteousness of our lives. And let those words rest on your soul. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Are you living with the delusion that somehow if you, if you just kind of get your, get your game together and live out the rest of your days as a good person that it'll be okay? Where does it leave us? Under sin, under the control of sin, obligated to it, unrighteous, accountable, condemned, religious and non-religious alike. To go back to where we began, it, it really leaves us in a horrible predicament. We're not just talking about your present earthly financial condition. We're talking about a spiritual condition where you actually have a record of unrighteousness that you personally have no ability to clear. That's bad enough, but the problem is you also have a deficit you cannot cover because God actually requires perfect righteousness to enter his presence and live with him forever. Oh, my friend, aren't you tired of living with that kind of deficit? Aren't you tired of the pressure you live under to measure up even in your religious life and community? 
Aren't you tired of the scrutiny that you feel the second you leave your home? The weight of God's law that presses down on your soul, even on your best days where you've, you've absolutely given your all. You know in the secret place of your heart it wasn't enough because it really wasn't perfect. It's exhausting. And really, what will you do? Even if we could just erase the past, hit the reset button, kind of reboot everything, and, and as you fired up again, I mean, will you just try harder this week? I am so grateful that the gospel Paul is setting before us is not a try harder, be more committed gospel. And if you actually have allowed the word of God and the spirit of God through that word to bring you to the place where that picture would be an appropriate reflection of where you are at this minute, you are in the perfect position to hear what comes next. And this is glorious. Look at your Bible. Two words that mark a significant change for us. But now, oh, as bad as it is, but now. As unrighteous as you are, there's an alternative coming. As hopeless as you might feel, as worn out and weary as you may be from trying to be religious enough, committed enough, there's something that the Lord is revealing here. And what does he tell us? Well, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is the irony, like, right? Remember I quoted that portion of 2 Timothy where Paul says, you've known from a child the, the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise into salvation that actually point you to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is essentially saying, I, I know I just like, like laid out the case that we're unrighteous, we're under sin, it's bad. But, you know, the same book that tells you, the same oracles that say you're really rotten also say, but there is a way of rescue. And what is that? Well, we keep reading. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And here's the contrast. By faith means you don't work for it. By faith means you don't earn it. By faith means you don't reach some merit level of achievement where God goes, now you get righteousness. No, it is free and fully offered for all who come in faith. And part of the expression of that faith would be, I am fully unrighteous. I'm as corrupt, God, as you said in every one of those Psalms that Paul quoted in Isaiah. I mean, from, from Genesis all the way through Malachi, the Old Testament just brings that home. Yes, Lord, I'm unrighteousness, but the faith also expresses it in the hope that he offers righteousness that you and I could never earn or afford on our own. It's free and full. That's why the passage that Matt read earlier before we took the offering is so glorious. Where Christ has sacrificed himself and, and that offering has been, been made, there is no more offering for you or me to bring to this. You know, on the one hand, I, I hope you had the joy of worshiping God through uh, a monetary offering today, but whether you did or didn't doesn't have bearing on what we're talking about here. Faith in Christ for all who believe. There's so much more that lies ahead and in many ways, I, I don't like stopping at this point, but it'll keep for another week. The question is, will you? What will you do with this? 
Will you continue to try to earn your righteousness with God, your standing, his favor? Or will you just lay it down and say, I'm done with that? I use the illustration at a couple of points of, of bankruptcy. And you know, when, you're, when your cards are maxed out, you can swipe them all day long, even with good, sincere intentions. It just doesn't do anything. And some of you are trying to do that spiritually. Put your cards away. Cut them up and throw them away and turn to God and, and say, I need your gift. And he's got more than enough to clear your debts and to make the deposit that all of us need. The full, free deposit of Christ's righteousness. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're weary from working really hard to be religious enough, perhaps you've come to that crossroads where you see that is a, a losing strategy. Will you call upon this Lord, this God, this Savior right now and say, oh God, I'm in need of forgiveness for all of my unrighteousness and I need this gift of Christ's righteousness. Do it right now. Just quietly from your heart. It's for all who believe. Young, old, religious, non-religious, all who believe. You may have questions. You may say, I, I think I understand some of this, but there are other parts of this that don't quite make sense. Could we talk at a later time? And the answer is yes. Oh, yes, we can. We can talk today. We can find a time in the week to come. We can do it in person. We can correspond. And there are multiple people here that would, would love to do that as well as me. Yes, let's talk. Father, by your spirit, bring life where there is a dead religion. Bring hope where there is weariness. Bring light where there is darkness. Save us, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.